Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 40. I'm very pleased to be joined today by our guest, Natasha Senra Pereira. Talk therapy isn't enough, subtitled A Psychotherapist's Personal Transformation Through Neuroscience, Psychedelics, and Spirituality. Um, so, Natasha, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Josh. I'm really happy to be here, and that's quite the subtitle, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it gives a good, you know, description of what, what lies ahead. So you were about to tell me a story about the cover, which I was admiring. I think it reminds me a little bit of, um, you seen that book, Angela's Ashes? That, uh, Frank I have. McCart. Yeah, I feel like there's a kid on there. Maybe it looks a little bit like this. Yes, yes, it does. Well, the story with the covers, I had a great publisher, Modern Wisdom Press. They're absolutely fantastic. And they've got great cover designers. And they sent me a bunch of covers, but it kept coming back to me, this picture of me, that's me on the cover at Ooh. two years old. That's me. Are you in, so is this joy or distress? What's going on here? Total chaos and distress. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout my um, own personal transformation, that little girl kept coming up in all of sort of the processes. So when it came to the cover, I sort of fought my publisher on it. And I go, I really think it's her because she was the one at the core of all of my struggles. Um, and so that's where it came from. But no, not everyone knows that that's actually me. That's a photograph. Where where was this taken? Somewhere in Canada? Yeah, in Toronto, my backyard. I couldn't get into the garage. <laughs> that's and then you have the your your modern cover or modern picture on the back. So there's the transformation. There's right there. the transformation. It is yeah. possible through psychedelics, neuroscience, and spirituality, for me anyway. Well, I really enjoyed the book. I resonated a lot with the work you've done, the work you're doing. And also, it's a, fun, it's a fun read. You know, I've written lull in the sides of many pages. So I really appreciated the humor. And also, I think some of the snarkiness makes me feel like a kindred spirit. So... Um, not only is it an interesting that. book, yeah, it's well written. It's funny. Um, it's not a dry uh, therapeutic text. There's a lot of good details and examples and anecdotes. So yeah, it's a good read, even for I would say folks who aren't like super interested in therapy. Just the story of a person, you yeah. know, it's interesting in its own right. So oh, I appreciated you. You took that from it. Yeah, I've read a lot of therapy books. I've done a lot of sort of training and I appreciate the information and I wanted to get the information across and it's all there and it's sound science. Um, but from my perspective going through it and with my personality, which I appreciate isn't for everyone. Some people need a very sort of serious sort of sacred space to talk about trauma. My personality is a little different and I think that humor is incredibly important. And as far as it being a pretty easy read, I work with a couple of like new moms and they say, I haven't read a book in over a year and I read your book in two days. So I'm glad that it moves quickly for people. It does indeed. Even if you're taking notes as I was and writing questions. Yes. <laughs> so I think one of the, one of the big themes in the book, um, and it's something I'm really interested in these days is, is kind of the difference between coping and healing. Yeah. Um, so like learning practices or tools that kind of help you get through individual moments, but maybe aren't so transformational. 
Can you spell that out for me a little bit? What is the difference between coping and healing? I'm smiling because I'm talking to the parts of me that are a little quick and funny and snarky. I'm like, let's answer this appropriately, please. Um, Because I'm at a space where, and again, I appreciate this isn't for everybody, but I feel that the focus on coping is actually problematic for a lot of people. I have very little interest in helping people cope with dysregulated and traumatized nervous systems. I'm really here for the purposes of healing and transforming. We've gotten far too used to, I'm just coping and coping when there's a whole life waiting for you. Um, And I also appreciate how you said that there are moments where I have to cope with the nervous system I have in the moment with my partner or at work or, you know, with my kids, Um, but it doesn't stop there. Right. And so that would really be the differentiation that I want to make. Coping is just getting me through this moment, but it's an indication that there's something I have to heal so that I can move away from coping. And the biggest coping I sort of practice and teach now, because people are always asking me for tools. And I laid it out in the book is if you don't know what to do, do nothing. If you don't know what to say, say nothing. And if you're not able to do that, get in the shower because it's really Mm. hard to text your boss from the shower, right? Like it's Mm. really hard (laughs) to say that to a friend from the shower. I swear I spent a year and a half in the shower. It's funny. We've learned like so many acronyms on the show for different techniques like rain or a bunch of other ones. But but this one of doing nothing, saying nothing or showering, we'll we'll have to make that into an acronym, I think. Well, because the other ones didn't work for me. My nervous system Mm -hmm. is so fast and my fighters were so fast that I wasn't going to hold an ice cube or I wasn't going to go to page 23 of a book. And it just was impossible. So I learned to be silent and get in the shower. And that was the most useful for me. I appreciate that. I have some parts and we'll, we'll define parts and talk more about that in a second, but I have some very strong parts. I guess I'm sort of hoping that as I get older, they'll like get more tired and have less energy, (laughs) um, which I don't know if that is or is not the case, but some of them are so strong that sitting down to like try to meditate in the middle. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a no go. I appreciate the people that, you know, rain and tapping and all of that works for them. I'm very open to whatever works for you. My sort of tagline is always take what works, leave the rest. This is just for people that resonate with the kind of system I have that is like, Oh no, I need to move my body and leave the scenario immediately because they're so strong. And it's me being respectful to myself saying, I need to move this energy before I can come back and respond in a way that holds the greatest benefit for all of us, which is just respect and integrity. And if I'm not in that space, then I'm in the shower, I'm running. And that was before, not anymore. That was my coping. Now they don't overtake me in the way that they used to because there's mutual respect between myself and the nervous system I have. Totally. Totally. So let's let's definitely put a pin in the parts thing, and I'll, I'll maybe I'll ask you that next, just so that listeners who aren't familiar with IFS aren't confused. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the title. And this is sort of similar to my first question about the difference between coping and healing. So it's a catchy title. Talk therapy is not isn't enough. It definitely resonates with me, but it's just a title, right? So is it enough sometimes for some people? When is it enough? Um, Maybe if you, I guess all, perhaps all people experience like trauma with like a little R or a a little T or a big T, but 
when is talk therapy enough? Is it sometimes maybe we can provide a little more context around the title? Sure. Uh, talk therapy isn't enough if, for you if you're still suffering and focusing on coping. Talk therapy is enough for you if you feel like you're thriving and connected and present in your body. Well done. That just wasn't me. Uh, and it wasn't for a lot of clients that I was working with who seemed to think that they had to move in with me to get any sort of level of comfort or space. And I don't want to be responsible for regulating you because I want you to have the freedom and self-mastery to create your life for yourself. And talk therapy isn't enough for a lot of people, um, mostly because, and I don't know how much you want to get into sort of the neuroscience of it. Um, and this is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's work. This is right. Dr. Gabor Matei's work, Dr. Peter Levine, all these, you know, um, fantastic minds in the field, Dr. Dan Siegel, where talk therapy is really only using one part of your brain, right? Of your nervous system, the one that can hold time and space and the one that can hold language. Well, not to get into parts, but the emotional body, right? And those parts of you aren't connected to the part that can talk through it. And that's really what trauma is. Trauma isn't the event that happened to you. It's how that event shifted the way you now communicate with yourself and are connected to yourself. Um, and that to me, after being, you know, a therapist for 15, 16 years and being in talk therapy forever, how is it that I'd never heard that before? Mm, mm -mm. And so that was what was so mind blowing to me. And that was the title. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can even fully appreciate how mind blowing that must have been because it was mind blowing for me as a lay person who's not a therapist, but for someone who is practicing for more than a decade, just now getting into the stuff that actually works. Quite frankly, <laughs> so, I was pissed. I don't yeah, know how yeah. much I'm allowed to sort of explain. Oh, or whatever. Yeah. But I was like, how is no one talking about this? Meanwhile, I'm looking at Dr. Gabor Mate, and this is before he'd sort of blown up. So I was, you know, very close to him. We were in an auditorium and I go, do people know about this? And it was surprising to me at the time to watch fellow clinicians all hands up, really aggressively pushing back. Same thing when I saw Dr. Bessel, you know, Vanderkolk and other people, you know, when they were more accessible. And I was really surprised by all of the people that were pushing back, including Dick Schwartz, because for me, it was just resonated and was just so true um, for me. But yeah, I was, I, I couldn't believe, I went through my head, all of the people that had sat in my offices and I was like, if they'd only knew. Mm. Well, now they do. You now know, they do. People, thanks to those people you mentioned and people like you are making this kind of um, therapy more accessible. I think you sort of answered another one of my questions, which, and now maybe let's just get out the, get the boilerplate out of the way. So IFS, internal family systems, it's a therapeutic model. It includes some specific vocabulary, including the word parts, which uh, refers to the flavors or people or personalities or voices or characters or, I don't know, the aspects of yourself uh, that show up in different ways. I know for me personally, I have a part that has a sense of humor. I have a part that gets upset pretty easily. I have a part that is outgoing, a part that doesn't like to fail. So we all have, I don't know, different parts. Um but anyways, that's featured a lot in the book. Is there anything you want to add 
to you said that beautifully and i would just add that it's not just about ifs and you'll see in the book that i talk about emdr and then i talk about relational somatic work and then other modalities it is correct to say that you know dick schwartz models of ifs kind of serves as the backbone for the way that i see like the paradigm i use to understand not only myself but other people how we work with the parts in various modalities um, is something that was so amazing for me to explore because it wasn't just IFS alone that I needed. I needed a lot more. Um, but yeah, the parts work is, is huge. And I like how you talked about a part with a sense of humor and those parts. I always talk about this is the personality. And thank goodness we each have one that's uniquely mm hours and you know i spoke about that at the end of the book about sort of being egoless and it's like no you just need to come to a space to start appreciating and healing and updating and harmonizing the parts and the personality that you have so that you can spread your unique expression on the planet which comes from the wisdom of the self right and the compassion of the self and the clarity of the self not the broken right traumatized part that just hijacks you and then leads you into despair and brings other people down with you so that parts work is is really huge for sure yeah and i think some of what you're saying recognizing that we have a personality and like the ego is never going to disappear it can be an important like punctuation mark in people's like healing journeys and i think it's something that you mentioned and i guess your partner trevor mentions it's like when is it enough you know because like I've been on a bunch of meditation retreats and I've also I've, I don't think I've done as many things as you have, but I've definitely done a bunch. And there's a point at which it's not like you never stop growing, but there's a point in which like, OK, at least for now, the work I've done is enough. Maybe now I'll ju- kind of just like focus and laugh with my friends and, you know, eat dinner with my family and the, the normal stuff, the stuff of life that is going to be there regardless of where you are on your journey. It's It's a really important point. And I sort of come to a different level of appreciation of even sort of that question because at the time you know where trevor had said like when is it enough it was still just trying to get to a space of a level of self-mastery where i wasn't hijacked to the point that there was destruction in front of me right and so now thankfully i can say i'm at a place of more practice which is where my parts have slowed down enough that I'm aware of what's going on and I can make choices. And when there's a misstep or when I do get hijacked, I know how to repair. There's an apology or there's compassion or there's self-forgiveness, right? But I don't believe that we ever stop evolving in the process of further healing. It's just not so much of the focus. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the piece. The way that I'd really sort of answer this is the brilliant Janice Hayes in the book where she talks about that we're given times of tests and challenges and we're given times of peace and enjoyment. Mm. And so I see it more that way. There will always be an evolution. There will always be more learning or healing or growing or expansiveness. And now's a time for peace and enjoyment. Don't worry, the universe will give me the next test and challenge just so I can see what I've mastered and what work still needs to be done. But that's the way I kind of like to see it. I don't think the work's ever done, but definitely times for peace and enjoyment and just laughing with your friends and making spaghetti without wondering how present you are, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I definitely identify with that. It can be easy, I think, 
especially depending on what you're into when i was pretty fresh and really interested in mindfulness and i still am it can be easy to try to change not just like the way that you relate to the world but like the kind of person that you are and i think there's like a good quote from i think it's the dalai lama who says something like don't use these practices to be a better buddhist just use these practices to be a better whatever you already are you know and that's really the message of not only my book but what i even sort of teach now with my clients like you're here to be human it's really important and human is sort of acceptance um and clarity which means i'm aware of the choices i'm making in this moment and i take responsibility for those choices i really do speak out a fair bit about this idea of, i'm sure you've heard of like spiritual bypass where we move past the humanness that we are because we're always sitting in a meditative mind state instead of an experiencing mind state balance is really important and part of being balanced is accepting what you're showing up with and taking responsibility for healing the parts that are hurting you or are hurting others. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. It's a, it can be a delicate ba balance or dance, but I, I guess the longer people are on whatever path they are, maybe they come to respect the sort of the difference there or whatever yes. works, winds up working for them. Take what works and leave the rest. Right. And right. we're all on different paths to teach different pieces. Like I really appreciate Michael A. Singer and Eckhart Tolle, right? right? And these great spiritual teachers, but it's not my path. Just like Trevor's path wasn't my path. It was really to go through the ego and through the nervous system to get to this own space of enlightenment and peace and mindfulness. But there's different ways. For sure. And we get so many, such a variety in the book. So one thing that is relevant in your book, in your story, and in really all of our stories, for better or worse, is this cycle of having parents who have their own pain that like are doing the best they can and then having kids, you know, who better or worse pick up the good and the bad. And it's like this cycle that I guess as we heal, we're trying to intercept, you know, to try to break the cycle a little bit. Yeah, wh what are your thoughts about like forgiveness and and processing and making peace with these sort of cycles of like misparenting or, or yeah. doing the best you can? Well, and, and I want to jump back to just what you said right before, which is so relevant about everyone else's path, because we have to, I have to be mindful about where people are when they hear certain things. So I'm at a space now where I can take responsibility for myself and right how I co-created dynamics with my family based on the perceptions I had and what my parts took in. However, I couldn't get there at the beginning because there is a lot of work that you need to do about processing what happened to you, right? How your parents own ignorance, really, which means lack of awareness about their own parts and their own trauma really damaged and hurt you. And so when I skip ahead and sort of talk about the reality of now where the deep love and appreciation I have for my parents and actually even being incredibly impressed and proud that they did as well as they did, which was mm -hmm. not great, but they did as well as they did given everything that they were holding, right? But you can't get from the beginning to there. So it is a process for people. Um, 
but yes, it is cyclical and it is intergenerational in the sense that if it's not cleared and healed in one generation, well, yeah, it is going to be sort of passed down until someone wakes up, becomes conscious of being responsible for healing that part that continues on all of this damage. And, you know, I have two boys and you kind of hear about it in the book where I have that moment where I can feel that part, boom, 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 come up in my body and just unleash holy hell on my beautiful, innocent child. And really in that moment, I could be like, my mother held this energy, right? When it Mm. came to me. Um, And so again, the big message of the book and in my practice is really personal responsibility for our own healing and our own abusive energies so that we don't continue passing that forward. Um, The other thing that I've heard, which is really quite beautiful about what healing really is, is it really has two components. The first one is giving back what you took from others and taking back what was taken from you. I apologize and forgive any of the abuse that I put on others in my life, looking at those parts that really created a lot of abuse, and then really taking back what was taken from me, how I was abused, all right, done through the nervous system or spiritually or whatever practice you have. But it really is just, this was done to me and I did this to others and just coming back to wholeness. And that was a really amazing way that I sort of heard it where I you know, can forgive my parents because I can take back my own safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a pithy and, and um, pretty thoughtful way of, of describing it. I think, I think when I first started doing therapy a long time ago, like in college, anytime people would want to know something about like my parents, I'd be like, isn't Freud dead? Like, why, why <laughs> do know that? You know, that's not relevant. But now, of course, I think a lot, you know, about those kinds of questions, not like in a punitive way, like to cast blame, but sort of as a way of understanding, explaining, and and hopefully as maybe a trailhead uh, for empathy and for also, you know, my own healing. Of course, we have to understand how we perceive the world and we perceive the world based on the way we experienced it. And how else did we experience it? But by our caregivers right? It's human beings are the only mammals that can't crawl to their own food or comfort source in infancy. We're completely dependent on the adults and the caregivers in our world. And right, and energetically, even, you know, in infancy and all sorts of studies are done on this. If I sense that you won't keep me, then my survival's at stake. So my nervous system will start developing all these beliefs and ideas of how I need to be and who I need to be. And our parents have a huge part to play in the co-creation of who am I and how do I experience the world and what is the world. But after a certain point, we're responsible for healing the perceptions that we took in in Mm. childhood. And I like how you say for better, for worse, because that's the truth of it. Um, So my parents aren't going to do anything at this age to repair the beliefs I took in in childhood. They can to my left brain, the talking part of me, mm-hmm. but no one is going to connect to those parts of me but me. And I say to clients all the time, I'm very good, but I can't give you self-respect. <laughs> I can't give you self-love. I can't give you healing and wholeness. I can be your guide. I can align you. I can use these beautiful, incredible 
modalities, but there's free will and there's agency and there's choice here. Does that totally. sort of make sense? Yeah. yeah, it makes perfect sense. So um, in the book, you're at a an IFS training and there's a, a someone who's leading it named Derek and they're describing how a kid who is experiencing some abuse might have thoughts like, I'm bad, worthless, terrible, but that in those situations, the exiles make the intolerable tolerable. And I know it's pretty, it'll be pretty hard to give like a cognitive explanation about what exactly is happening inside like a child's brain in that moment where like an exile is born or a part is exiled, but like, and I'm not asking you to put on like a, you know, a biological hat or, or, or maybe you are, maybe the scientists do have something to say about this, but just to make it like a little clearer to those of us who might be interested in what exactly is happening to that kid in that moment with the birth of an exile. Um, maybe you could take a stab at, at what is going on there. I like to keep things sort of simple in the sense, like you said, cognitively, because you really need to experience it to really understand what it is. And what I mean by understand is the consciousness of like, oh, this is it. Like I can talk to you all day about what chocolate tastes like, but until you experience, right, the taste of chocolate, do you really have a knowing of what it is? Mm. But in a, a nutshell, again, children are completely vulnerable and defenseless right? I need you to keep me so that I can survive. I can't even keep my body warm, right? Like in infancy or sort of when I'm, you know, very young, I'm completely dependent. And I don't actually have a fully formed prefrontal cortex, which is a fully formed thinking brain with full perspective until I'm 25 years old. Mm -hmm. So the capacity with which I can understand what's happening all comes back to my survival and safety. And so, for example, at seven years old, if mom comes home and she's had a very difficult day and she's fighting with dad or she has a trauma history or whatever's happening and she comes in and I just sense, because I don't have a fully formed thinking brain, so I use the rest of my senses, that she's dissatisfied, unhappy, something's happened, she's angry, my little nervous system needs to figure it out and it all comes back to me. And if I take in, I'm unlovable or I'm bad, or I've done something wrong, or someone's not pleased with me, my nervous system goes danger, 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 you're not gonna be kept. And so a little part or a little, what we call exiles is the classification goes, I'll absorb this energy. I'll take in the belief that I'm no good or that I'm unlovable or that I'm bad. And this is a mildish example, but it's not for the child. If they feel that they're not bad or they haven't made mom happy, and I will exile that belief out of your awareness, but that energy is still there. That energy gets absorbed. And then other parts show up to manage the situation or to deal with the situation, but that initial energy is now exiled. And I like to say, and this is what I sort of say to clients, all of these parts really are heroes because they're all doing the best that they can in order to help the child survive the moment, get through the intolerable feeling that I might not be good enough or mom might not love me. Hmm. But in my belief, there's an agreement made. These all parts say, I will jump on this terrible energy. And if it's like physical abuse or sexual abuse or right, really intense experiences, I will take in all of this energy so that you can stay present and survive this experience. 
but come back for me. When it's safe, when we're old enough, when you have agency, when you have choices, come back for me. And we, mm. right, energetically, spiritually go, no problem, no problem, thank you, thank you. And then we quickly move on because we're just so grateful no longer to feel that experience consciously. But that agreement was made and they will always come back to fulfill the bargain we made. And if we don't pay attention to them, then that energy will create it in the external world to show you. It'll draw in a partner. It'll draw in a critical boss. It'll draw in someone. And you will now perceive that person in the same experience that you had in childhood in order to wake you up. Does yeah, that make sense? It's, yeah, it's coming back to have its uh, debts paid or something like that. <laughs> To fulfill the agreement of knowing what we went through, healing what we went through, and moving forward. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful idea. This kind of agreement that you come back and uh, um, bring it into the fold, bring it into the to the system once you have the wherewithal. I think I already know the answer to this question, but you mentioned how when you went to some of these conferences, you were surprised at how how much it took for some of your colleagues to uh, start to believe uncritically mm -hmm. some of the things that were being sold to them. And I get that, that I guess it, it just really resonated with you. So for me, it was such a different experience because the personhood of parts felt like kind of a big pill to swallow. But really? for you, it's yeah, because they're okay. Yeah. For you, it was like, yeah, this makes sense. I felt this before. I felt it in my, body um right away and again i'm sort of grateful for that because i have a lot of skeptical parts a ton about a lot of things like chanting and other things i'm working on it um <laughs> but i always and i believe dick schwartz sort of says this and you know other teachers i've had where they talk about skeptical parts are really important they keep people from selling you shit you don't need mm -hmm. um it just didn't show up then there is something in my body that just resonated the truth of those words for me, for me, where I'd had skeptical parts about tons of work that I had done in major mental health fields. I was kind of a pain in the ass. Like I was like a lot of that audience in different ways. Um, and I think this is also why I really follow, right. And practice what I preach that it needs to be right for you. And so I wrote this book for people that were like me and were looking for other ways that resonated for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess therapy and these modalities, it's its so different from the other sciences where they seek to have a solution that just generally works, right? The emphasis here is really on finding the things that work for you. And it definitely seems like different people dif uh, resonate with different sorts of approaches. But I guess perhaps that's a strength of the field. Anyways, there's no question there. I'm just sort of. Well, I love this because it's also the same thing. I know when you bring up sort of like, you know, meditation and mindfulness and sort of other pieces in that I believe psychology or psychotherapy is sort of moving into. It is for me anyway, that you are a mystery. You're a very complex human being. We all are. And almost the narcissism that we think that we're going to figure it out or have an answer or have it complete in a bow is kind of nuts. Mm. Um, what we want to do is have a solid, sound, trusted transformation to move people out of deep suffering. That is extremely important. And in that sense, I'm 
you know, have so much honor and respect for all of these modalities and how they work with different people in different ways to move out of suffering. But once we've moved out of a level of suffering and we're moving into a space of practice and self-mastery, there is a level of just moving into the unknown and respect for the beauty and all of that. So again, there really is quite the spectrum depending on where you are in your own healing journey. Sure. I think the appreciation for the complexity of it probably comes later on when you're just feeling well enough to like get out of bed. Exactly. Um, and when you're not there, I don't want anyone talking to me about the magic and the mystery of the unfolding. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't showered in four days. I can't stop crying. And going to the grocery store is a massive challenge for me. And that's what I mean by the spectrum. At that point, though, and it almost seems... <laughs> mean, but when clients talk to me about their deep suffering at our very first session, I'm grinning at them like an idiot because I'm like, wonderful, you finally suffered enough. Do you have the desperation of a drowning man to move out of all of the bullshit that you've been trying and actually mm -hmm. go into your nervous system and actually look at what's possible and to wake up? Because that's really the starting point where I'm tired of trying to cope with this and I'm really ready to look at this. That's the starting point. Yeah. I had uh, Stephen Hayes, the act guy on the podcast a long time ago, and he said something like, like those of us who are lucky are lucky enough to suffer to the degree that they go and get help, you know, yes. sometimes to do better than those that are just merely managing their whole lives. I will absolutely attest to that. My clients that have the biggest transformations with EMDR, IFS, relational somatic work. And again, like I've done everything. I needed everything. I had a lot of trauma. Um, it's like those of us that have walked these incredibly difficult path, paths, like we're in, like, let's go. Um, where, you know, those of us that merciless, like mercifully <laughs> have not had that sort of level of trauma, they can take a different pace. It is unique for everybody. Um, and there is a real path for you. You know, if you're on it and if you're not. You do know, you just have to listen to your intuition. Fear usually keeps us on a path that we should have walked off a long time ago. And that's where I'm grateful for parts work and really even looking at what that part is. But yes, no, depending on where you are in your journey, you just want relief initially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And believe me, I resonate with the fear part. I got this whole podcast called the Anxiety Book Club. So, <laughs> Yes, fear is fear is the one for sure. There's a big one. So I want to I want to read a little bit from the book because there's a really beautiful segment. Um, I have the book here on page 123, where I think you're liberating a, a young part of yourself and either. Well, I don't know. Either I'll read it or you read it. I don't know if you're prepared. I didn't ask you to have a copy of the book or anything. You might have you one. Have Do you want to tell me? Sorry about all the background noise. 123. No, no, you're great. Yeah. Check out. How about, yeah, how about from the bottom of 122, the last paragraph there, maybe until until the paragraph ends on the next page or, or some portion of that? Ah, I know this scene. Okay. I could clearly see it was an eight-year-old energy. It had no nuance or wisdom, and it didn't care for the intricacies of decorum in the grown-up world. It didn't care if it made people feel threatened or embarrassed. Its job was to make sure people knew they couldn't mess with me. 
Derek encouraged me to stay with this part, heart open, and ask it why it had taken on this role. The part stepped to the side and, with almost a tenderness, gestured to a whole lineup of little girls. I gasped as I saw half a dozen little girls, sweet and innocent. I burst into tears. They were so beautiful and gentle and almost angelic. I told Derek what I was seeing and tried to breathe through the tears. I felt a rush of love for these girls. This Peter Pan part looked up and told me with a wide grin that it had done a great job of hiding them and making sure they were never hurt. I could feel the energy of these girls. They felt like Jesse and Abe, my sons, full of love and forgiveness. As Peter Pan watched me, it sensed my love and compassion for these little girls, my genuineness towards them, and my own confidence and capacity as the self. Its smile waned, and it looked sad, realizing that it no longer had to hide these parts, didn't have to perform its duty. Are you sure? It seemed to ask me. I sent a burst of gratitude and appreciation to it and let it know it was time. Time to allow those beautiful qualities of these young parts to be experienced and matured through me. I let them all see my sons, Jesse and Abe, and how the boys would delight in the gentle, beautiful energy behind Peter. It smiled brightly at me and moved aside, releasing the girls into my heart, and I could feel their energy moving through me. Peter did a funny little jig and seemed to salute me as the image faded. Yes. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. So I like this, this story. It's like a, a really good IFS story. It's a really good story of you getting in touch with maybe people who look like her perhaps, Yes. Um, you know, and showing them, you know, what life is like now for you as an adult and, and how useful, you know, protectors like Peter Pan are. Um, and it was, and even going back to just sort of like the intergenerational sort of trauma piece, I was a good mother, which means, you know, my kids had lunches and bedtime and no one had lice. All the, you know, like I did a lot. Uh, oh, we all have lice. It's not even about being a good mother. But um, there wasn't really the tenderness and the warmth and the snow, slowness and the connection because that Peter Pan part of me had was really hiding all of my tenderness so that I wouldn't be as badly abused in childhood as I already was. And so to have that tender, angelic, soft, beautiful energy now available to me, my children could feel, right? Friends could feel that vulnerability actually meant that people that were safe and trusted could actually provide me with support. Um, so that was hugely eye-opening for me because I had no idea that I was this tender, gentle, loving, generous person because that energy hadn't been available to me. Yeah. You know, for all of us and all of our skeptical parts, it's like moments like these when you get to experience uh, like some kind of feeling of like inner tenderness yeah. where like you don't necessarily need like a randomized control trial. Like, <laughs> you know, just... The proof is kind of right there for us to to see, I guess. And just even the experience of yourself, going back to, you know, talking about possibly some listeners to this that are just in 
they're in that state of like in bed and just crippling anxiety and, and imprisoned by their parts. The experience for me to witness myself in a way that is so loving and so tender just opened up so much more self-compassion and understanding that I was more than just the parts of me that I had access to that were such strong protectors. Um, and so that journey of self-love and self-experience is where we get to once we start our healing journey. And that is just a beautiful unfolding. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Makes for, for good writing as well. Yes. So I don't think we've really, on this podcast, at least we haven't really talked about EMDR mm-hmm. and I've never done it. And so I only kind of know what it is. Can, can you explain to me, like I'm five years old, what is EMDR? EMDR is fantastic, first of all. Uh, and I've worked with lots of clients who have sort of said to me, so I'm going to preface this. I tried EMDR. It wasn't really for me. I didn't really get it. But I've heard people say that about IFS, and I've heard people say that about relational somatic work in the same way that you hear about people that have bad psychedelic trips or good it really is something that you need to be curious towards and the matching and the partnership is really important between you and a therapist. And what I mean by that is similar to IFS, you don't really need to like your therapist, thank goodness, because the healing isn't necessarily um, determined on what they're doing to you or for you, but there needs to be a level of sort of respect and trust. And that piece is sort of key. And you'll even sort of see that in the book. Like my system, I trusted it. It was like, I don't want to work with you. I don't want to work with you. I want to work with you. And not to put down the therapist, I just, my body, I followed like, okay, you can sort of hold a container for me in this space. So EMDR, as simply as I can, is actually its own trauma therapy. It's not just, you know, a theory, but it is an eight phase um, comprehensive trauma therapy that works with, I'll say, sort of bilateral stimulation. And what it sort of premises is going back to IFS, sort of in this idea of left brain, right brain, left brain, for better or for worse, holds, it's not too technical, but we'll call it left brain, holds time and space, right? It holds the reality of the present moment, my, my thinking brain, my vocabulary, my language center. And then mm-hmm. the right part of the brain, we'll say, is what used to be called sort of the limbic system, which is really sort of more that emotional experience sort of space. And when they're not connected, left brain, right brain, experiences and emotion, time and space, I'm holding emotional material, right? Kind of like the exile that's no longer connected to the fact that I'm a 42-year-old woman that sort of terror or that fear or that anger or that humiliation, right? It continues to get triggered in the external world because it hasn't yet been processed. It's still being held. And if we pretend this is kind of like a neural pathway, it continues to collect experiences on the belief of I'm not safe or I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable. So there's all of these memories that are being held here that are constantly being triggered. Does that make sense? And so EMDR in this sort of eight phase therapy can start creating this safe container in my 42 year old body, right? It can access the left part of my brain that says I'm safe. I'm okay. I can handle being embarrassed, right? And then it can pull up and I'm saying this kind of crudely, but we'll pull up 
a memory or an experience or an emotion. We talk about the first, the worst, or the most recent, right? We just Mm -hmm. need an on-ramp. And once you can kind of hold that dual attention, 42-year-old me is here, and I can sort of see in my mind's eye or experience the pit in my stomach or the anxiety, then they'll do bilateral stimulation either through eye movements or through left brain, right brain tapping. Some people use, um, what is it called? New technology. I would never be able to use it. And what the general goal is, is that we start moving left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain, right? Where we can start putting in adaptive information to those sort of fixed memories that have kept us frozen in time. It really is incredible. The way it was best described to me, it's kind of like 42-year-old me sort of sitting on like a train, safe and secure. And then I'm going to start seeing all of these images, experience, memories that have sort of been frozen. I don't know where the sort of train is going, right? There's a tunnel. I know it's going to get me to the end. I don't know how fast, how long, how soon, but I know that I'm going to get to the end of it where I'm going to come back to the present moment, which is actually safe and secure. And so the therapist that you work with is very skilled in knowing which neural pathway you're in, which memory you're working on, right? And keeping you safe in the present moment. It's really quite beautiful hmm. and intense. Okay. I hope that that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's a good introduction to it. Again, I, I don't know much about it, but it, yeah, it sounds like another sort of way of updating, you know. It's all about updating. To the present, yeah. Same with IFS, same with relational somatic work. And that's sort of what I opened the book with, but that's doing it through the body. In psychology, we really ignored the body in lots of ways. And Dr. Pierre Levine's work is huge, Dr. Alan Shore, and understanding that the body is also taking in experiences and even the way that we hold ourselves and getting curious towards the body and what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely still a part of my my journey to spend more time there. So I spent a lot of time up up in the uh, the top most part of the body. Well, and I did too. There's a reason why I didn't get into my body until the end of the book. And I'm that whole section with Ruth, which my publisher actually wanted to cut out. And I go, oh, you can't, right? It's very important to understand that we can heal and clear a lot of our trauma. But if we're not physically living in the body, then I'm not really feeling my children when I'm holding them. Right. Mm. I'm not really present when I'm looking them in the eye, which is so important for developing your own vagus nerve. Mm. Right? We need to be in the body, which means we need to be comfortable in the body. And if you've experienced sexual abuse or physical violence or even just the intensity of a parent, one of the ways that the nervous system keeps you safe is actually just taking you out of your body. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I probably need to pay more attention to. And I, I actually, I have to admit that I did not really understand what you were doing with Ruth. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Uh, as as much as I like to think that my writing is like clear and, and comes across and is humorous, you have to experience it. I can write about tasting chocolate. But yeah. what I really did with Ruth was actually just concentrate on feeling physically what it felt like to be in a room with someone else and fully present. And that was actually very difficult for me because a lot of my protectors are about keeping you away from me with my words or my personality or thinking seven steps ahead to Mm -hmm. actually be vulnerable 
enough to be quiet and silent in my own body, sitting with someone in a room, was terrifying. Hmm. Yeah, I have to sort of take a deep breath because I, I, I think I, I think I know it a little bit what you mean. I sometimes if I sit down to try to do like a long body scan meditation, I'll, I'll like erupt, I'll explode. I, I can't, I can't lay there. Like the sensations, it gets really, really uh, strong really quickly. And isn't that amazing? And that's when it was like, oh, this is trauma. Like I can't even just lie in my own body without doing anything let alone just have someone else sit next to me. And I like how you said eruption, and that's what I wrote about. I just felt like I was pissed at Ruth. I was sad to be in my body. I was mad at her again for making me. I was mad at myself for not storming out. And it's like, there should not be this much activity just being asked to sit in a room. Hmm. What is it called? What is it called what Ruth does? Is there a name for it? I don't know. I'm sure there is. She was so mean. I didn't ask her. <laughs> but again, even going back to, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but she really was that mean. Um, but brilliant. And there's something to be said about different personalities of therapists. And again, mm -hmm. that's sort of what I meant by you have to respect your therapist, but not necessarily always like them. Um, you need to find someone that there is just resonance with. And I needed someone like Ruth who was strong and quick and could kind of put me in my place so that my protectors didn't talk me out of the work. Mm -hmm. I, you know, am extremely grateful to her and all of the different personalities of the therapists I worked with. And what I liked about the book, because I know we talk about boundaries so much and boundaries are important, but every therapist I work with had a personality and it was part of their personality that made them so relatable and human to me too. And so I like seeing that psychology is also moving that way, that we're not necessarily like healer person desperate for fixing. It's like, we're all just guides for each other. Totally. And it's interesting how useful other people can be regardless of where they are on their path. Of course. Yeah. So there's a quote here that resonated with me. Yeah, I think you were talking about relationships and it says, I had the clarity that in relationships I don't have to analyze or figure out people. I love that. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, that was after I was unceremoniously dumped at the front door. <laughs> I never heard from this man again, uh, right, years and years ago. And that image came up in sort of EMDR when I was doing EMDR. But it was like, I'm not here to figure out everybody else. I'm not. I'm here to know myself. And if my brain and my mind is trying to figure out everyone else's agendas and motives, then that means that that's a trauma reaction, right? Because that's me trying to understand what happened so I can protect myself versus mm -hmm. it already happened and I survived it and I'm fine. <laughs> What's going on for me? And just even going back to the idea of just like our intuition and who we are. It's funny, I keep bringing up chocolate. I've never talked about chocolate so much in my life, but my oldest son doesn't like chocolate. He never has. And it's so funny because people are always like, how do you not like chocolate? How do you not like chocolate? And this 11-year-old doesn't sit there and try and figure out why he doesn't like chocolate or if there's something wrong with him. He just goes, I just don't. And it's no different than other people. Why don't I like this person? I just don't. It doesn't make them good, bad, right, wrong. 
just not for me. And there's just such relief and less mental exhaustion and being so safe in your body that you don't need to figure it out. Yeah. And, and I think what goes along with it, at least for me, is the sort of mystery of living inside of a body that's really calling a lot of the shots, you know? Yes. And because it's calling so many of the shots, you want to make sure it knows that it's 2022 and it's not calling the shots based on where it's stuck in time and space. And that is the takeaway of my entire book. Are you oriented to time and space or are you reacting from a place of trauma? And if you're reacting from a place of trauma, please look at these neuroscience modalities or other ways that you can actually work with consciousness to orient yourself to what's happening so you can start responding instead of reacting. And that's it because you are constantly interacting with your environment. So you want to make sure you're here. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're getting close to the top of the hour, so I'll just ask you a couple more questions, but you know, I've never written a book and maybe it's common amongst people who do. You must be a prolific note taker because there's so much detail no. in the book. No, at all. So how, people, how do you remember this stuff? <laughs> so I have lots of, you know, like now dear friends that along the way, you know, were with me at Risey or with me and things like that. And, and they'll say, how do you remember the details of all of that? And in this way, we'll speak. The only place I take tons of notes are Janice because Janice is talking a language that was so new to me about spirituality, but no, everything else. And again, I want to be mindful and sensitive and respectful to listeners of yours that are deep in the root of trauma, because I am speaking from the other side of it, but coming from the other side of it, that trauma brain that I had <laughs> growing up, my safety strategy was to absorb every feel of everything. If I know everything that's happening in the room and everything that you said, I can keep myself safe because I can hold you all to it. But thankfully that what started as a trauma strategy, I've been able to really embrace in a gift. It's a gift that I can sit in, you know, a, a room with anyone and feel and see and absorb and understand. And with clients, you know, they'll come back to me years later for like a check-in to do a piece of a process. For the life of me, I can't tell you how old you are. For the life of me, I can't tell you when I saw you last, my left brain doesn't register that. But I can sit with you and remember and feel every piece and part of work that we've done. And so for me, I see it as a story and I feel it as a story. And it's been a beautiful gift for me as a therapist to be able to sit with you in that just don't ask me to remember how old you are or how to spell mm -hmm. your last name or whether or not you like chocolate maybe depends on what part of you needed me okay. to remember that but yeah you're right Josh. um but no so for me it was it was a, a gift to write this book because i could revisit the experience of it all totally so where can listeners find you what are you working on what what should they know about you that we haven't mentioned today well, the place where I'm actually doing a lot of work now is psychedelics, um, mm. because that's really been a huge um, boom right now in, in psychology and sort of psychotherapy and in healing. And I feel very committed in the sense that my next book might be Psychedelics Isn't Enough, um, mm. because I appreciate how I had one interviewer once asked me, like, what do you think the hype is about psychedelics? And I go, I don't think it's a hype. I think it's people's desperation. I think people are so desperate 
to heal all of the suffering, that they'll do anything. Unfortunately, just like in this book that you'll see, it's not a one fix, right? There's a reason I had several modalities. There's a reason that there's a, a practice in this. So the work I'm doing with psychedelics right now is to help people prepare their nervous system for the journey, which means creating self-awareness and working with exiles and managers and the parts of them through EMDR or whatever it is to bring this up so that when we journey, when we use these beautiful ancient medicines, healing medicines that are available to us, we're actually aware of what's happening, why we're doing it. We've set the intention. We know how to partner with the medicine. And then when we come back from journey, we actually have internal scaffolding and a nervous system that can integrate the beautiful work. So that's really what I'm doing, really integrating neuroscience and spirituality and psychedelics so that we have trusted and true transformation. Mm. And that's been so beautiful to see the shifts in people that I don't think would have been possible in just siloed work. It's all here for us to pull together. So I'm doing that. Uh, if people are in, more interested in that or some of my writing, they can either go to my website, um, talktherapyisn'tenough.com and then my original website which is uh, privatetherapytoronto.ca because I'm Canadian so .ca cool Uh, well it's been educational and uh, lovely to talk to you and read your book so Natasha thanks so much for being on the podcast It's, it's been wonderful I really appreciate you Josh lovely to talk to you